Aguilar, Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bursts through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lennon. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop of goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. I, a couple of months ago, we did uh, a, an episode where we talked about... Um, how good Leinster were when they beat their opponent on the day. And we wanted to focus on how good Leinster were um, and rather than how bad their opponent were. And uh, their opponent on the weekend, the Cell Sea Sharks, uh, were not bad. They were excellent. And it provided one of the great games um, in like league history, frankly, in that uh, whatever variation of the league. Um but let's just talk about how good some of the Leinster players were, starting with Johnny Sexton. I was struck by his 80-minute performance, how unbelievably slow he was, and how absolutely phenomenal he was playing, running the whole game with uh, a few serious backline players outside him and a couple of much younger players in um, Russell and uh, Jimmy O'Brien, although he's more established now. What a, what a performance. What a performance, what a game. One of the best games I've ever seen in the RDS the only one that could compare to it was uh, the quarterfinal win over Claremont. And we've had some great games in the RDS. But that game blew the top off the stadium. Uh, I, I thought it was amazing. And Sexton's performance was outstanding. And, and such a pleasure to be able to go and see him play. At 37 years old, it's... Like, he's he's such... He's one of the, the greatest rugby players uh, Ireland has ever produced. One of the greatest rugby players in the in the history of the game. Uh, he plays such... He's so intelligent. He sees the game so clearly. He sees uh, ways to make space for other players. And he's brave when he does it. And he has a phenomenal will to win. As, as competitive a player as I have ever seen in rugby. We were chatting after the match about how he's earned his... So, like, he, he, he obviously narks at the ref, complains at the ref, he's the captain to the ref. Like, it depends where you're from, how you see it. And you can see the other players, so the players in the other team getting annoyed at them, and they kind of say stuff back to him. And he just ignores them. <laughs> he doesn't even... He doesn't even acknowledge them. And you're sort of going... He's he's the world player of the year, or he has he has been a world player of the year, and he's done it all through football. And it's like I don't even deign to acknowledge you. I'll fucking bitch the ref if I want, but I'm not gonna, I'm not going to explain it to you. And that level of confidence and belief in himself because it's earned. Like he's like stop him doing it, you know. Um, and the All Blacks were giving out about him doing it when, when he was playing against them yeah. at home, you know, so... And there's some self-hating Leinster fans who seem to complain about it as well. Oh, it's very like football. Oh, God. Yeah. Give it a rest, lads. Yeah, to be honest, uh, I, he, he behaved in that game exactly like I'd want a uh, captain I was playing under or the captain of a team I was watching to behave. I felt that... He wasn't complaining about things like offsides or like scrums going down. His players were getting injured, uh, and he was telling the ref to do his job properly. And the ref wasn't doing his job properly. Uh, and you know, his, his his he's not he's not there to be liked. He's there to win matches. The single mindedness is uh, it's it's such a. a it seems like an innate part of his character, not something that he's had to learn or strive towards. That what that's what he's like, and, and has always had that. And uh, it's yeah, it's, it was it was a great to see him once again, you know, in the flesh on a lovely day in a really competitive match, just a regular season match. And like most things with Sexton, he's got better at it as 
he's spent more time at it. Like the only two guys I can think of who had that much influence over referees without getting blown off the park were Fitzpatrick and Richie McCall. And, and John O'Johnson. John I thought you were going to say Johnson. I can't believe yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> he's so like keep, Martin these, Johnson. They used to keep the refs away from Johnson, though. Because John, Johnson was too big. He'd, yeah, he'd, uh, he's too busy talking. Sorry, sorry. You see, John, sorry. Water bottle. <laughs> Johnson, Johnson away from the referees. But yeah, John, John was up there yeah. as well. Um, I don't, I don't think as influential as Fitzy. Like when England were very good, they were just better than people. Like it wasn't necessarily that John. I, I think though that Johnson and Sexton are very similar in their captaincy. Uh, more so than Shawnee Fitz. Shawnee Fitz had more like charm than them. Um, than uh, Sexton in terms of dealing with he would he would like butter up refs as well, but uh, Sexton and Johnson I think are very similar. It's just so single minded now they they don't suffer fools gladly as that as that phrase uh, goes and probably never like it's such a shit phrase really but it's ac- actually quite apt for those two. Let's share the phrase around. Gary Wingrose. Came on for twenty after oh, twenty minutes. I like that. I was saying it all through the game. <laughs> can't, believe, can't believe you didn't laugh at it then. <laughs> uh, Ringrose, like, just such a classy operator. The first try, beautiful. Second try, um, capitalizing on the beautiful dink kick by Henshaw. But throughout the game, and then <clears throat> as a receiver out wide, you're just going like, you're sort. I was sort of thinking to myself by the end of it, it was like. Forget about the rover. Could we play like three centers? Considering how well, I know Bundy's suspended now, but like, could you play three centers in the team and have Gary Ringrose as a winger? Like, he played that was a better winger performance than most of the Irish wingers have put in this year. Oh, see, it's again an absolute pleasure to watch. And uh, I thought the first try, the balance that he showed and collecting that hit, and he goes, he does this what they call in the NFL, gets skinny. It's like he sort of runs sort of like a crab without losing too much pace. Um, and then his ability to the uh, sort of read what Sexton's doing very early. And f- for a guy who doesn't play winger, to keep that wit and know, like, this is, my, this is my role here. This is what I should be doing. When I see them getting narrow, I'll keep wide. Sexton will kick the ball to me. I'll catch. Like, he had these five great breaks in the game. Um, and... You know, he's, he's he's tough. He's got great balance. He's really quick off the mark, great feet. Uh, he reads the game well. He can pass. And like everything you're looking for in a three-quarter. Uh, and real grace as well, which is just like a sort of... It's an added bonus. It's the yeah. Roger, Roger Federer. Correct. Added, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. Added aesthetic. Yeah. This isn't going to win you. You know, there's no room for description no. on the scoreboard. But yeah. like if you look at it, it is it just, it's just better. You know, it's more pleasing. For both of those guys, and I don't know if we're going to go through it or your plan was to go through them one by one, the way the match evolved and how competitive the Sharks were and how physical they were, the player that I appreciated the most on the evening was Andrew Porter. And Mm. what struck me about Leinster's performance was how well all the internationals played. So we've already talked about sex and ring rows, how good they were. Robbie Henshaw had a very big game. Andrew Porter had a very big game. Dan Sheehan. Dan Sheehan. Dan Sheehan didn't didn't as much, I thought, compared to the others. But what really struck me was that the Sharks were tough. And there was there was one call that went against um, their back row. I think it was their number seven. Blonde hair fella. Blonde hair guy, yeah. yeah. Is he puck eater? Oh, anyway, yeah. it, it went against him. And I thought, ooh, that's a little bit, it's a little bit harsh. But Leinster had been blown a lot. This is the one where he was called for having gone off his feet. Yeah. yeah. And then he was lying on the ground and he placed it back. Yeah. yeah. I think Draco was highlighting that he he felt it was a, he was going through his clips on Instagram and he was saying oh, he could feel aggrieved a bit there because he actually got the ball cleanly while he was on his feet and then hit the deck and then laid it back. And I, th- I thought the momentum went against the Sharks at that point and the wind sort of dropped from their sails. But... Leinster, like Leinster took it from them. But even before that, Porter had scored a try from close in. And against the South African teams, like you need to attack like that. You need to take them on physically. Um, it was a lesson to me from how Leinster played against the Bulls in the semi-final that they, they made too many nice patterns in front of the Bulls. Like the Bulls are, the South African teams are too good at defending. Like they know what you're going to do with this stuff. 
they want to tackle you, but like they're yeah. not going to jump in. They're they're going to. You have to challenge them. And Porter challenged them, and really, what it said to me was that winning in New Zealand was such a huge confidence booster for the lads that even when you're playing against a good South African team that are up for it, that are physical, that can take the wheels off, you don't panic. You have mm. the belief that, look, we beat the All Blacks in New Zealand. Did it twice. Won a series. Like, we've got this. And, and I, I just thought that was such an impact that the players... And it, it, it stood out to me because... I recall being involved in or and in teams that won stuff and obviously like much lower level, but like teams that won stuff and then later on in your career you play on further then as you as you're getting older and occasionally some of the same guys would play. And if you saw like two or three of those guys in the dressing room, you go, There's no way we're gonna lose this. Mm. You didn't even know how good the opposition were. You just went, No, 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 we'll win this. We know how to do it. And we always won. I would include Will Connors in that number, even though he didn't tour. I felt there was, I really felt that was that was noticeable. That game was like after sort of thirty minutes or maybe twenty five minutes, you had this was like, well, this is a bit like that Bulls match. You know, that's what I immediately felt was like, Jesus, Jesus, these lads aren't letting us have it have it all our own way, which is genuinely what I've seen like nine times out of ten in the RDS in a league match. <clears throat> I thought Will Connors was amongst the number to kind of lay a marker on them and like it reminded me of the thing that you said a couple of weeks ago when we were saying that like you know just good tackling will never go out of fashion at all just saw some of the stops that people made and the, the kind of extra level of effort they had to put in to stop their big guys with great real low just driving into people's hips the way it always stops everyone uh just great tackles and i wouldn't count ryan baird amongst that number i thought he was he was sort of on the edges of the game and looking for a big break, it felt like, rather than putting himself about. Ryan Baird, I think every time we talk about Ryan Baird, I either have to stop myself giving out about or give out about his concentration. Like I, I just don't know how he reads. The, I don't know how he reads the game. I'm not sure how he thinks about it. I, and so for example, like Connors is a great example. Like you look at Connors and you go. He makes so many tackles. You look at Van der Fleer and you go, he gets so involved and he's got so much more threatening as a carrier. And he's always been, like, he, he was never a great jackler, but he had a lot of presence at Rooks. In, sorry, he had frequent presence at Rooks. Like, he, he's there a lot. And again, like, his, his carrier has got so much more. Um, and sometimes Keelan Doris can kind of get out of a game, but oftentimes. He's involved very frequently, whereas Ryan Baird just sort of go. He, he he doesn't have that frequency of involvement. Yeah, well, I, I'll speak in his defence. Uh, he's learning a new position. Like he doesn't like he's had. A, I think six is a better fit for him than the second row. And when you see them lining up, Ross Maloney's like quite a bit bigger than him in breadth wise. Baird, I think, is going to be a really good six. I've actually no real worries about him. I think six is a right position for him, and it's it's a case of um, keeping on playing one position and um, just letting his like he's not going to be a like he's got a, he, he has got a huge engine. He's a very very fit dude, and it's just a case of learning what he's supposed to be doing in the game plan while uh, still looking for the 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 things that he can do that nobody else in the team can do. Mm. Yeah, so that's that is a difficult thing to learn, in my opinion. So I'm 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 very uh, optimistic about his about his future. Really, am. and uh, obviously he took a dreadful fall, and um, you know he he's, he won't be playing for a while. I don't know how long that'll be, but um, I I don't disagree with what you're saying. Like, but uh, I would be optimistic. I think it's I think it's just a learning curve that he's on at the moment about this new position you had a lot of time for uh maloney who came on yeah really liked him um i i remember hearing in uh, when he was in the academy that the uh academy staff just thought he was like like absolute head case one of the most committed players that they've ever had in there he's always fucking injured <laughs> like compared to some of the other 
athletes in Leinster's back row. He's not particularly big. He's not particularly fast. But he's got a lot of heart for the fight. Um, and he's like, it's a Im- really important quality in a, in a back row player. Um, he had to come in very early, like after four minutes and play number eight. He's not a number eight by any stretch of the imagination. And yet he was able to play the full, the, essentially the full game and keep on showing up for work. Um, like he's, he's quite a long way down the, the depth chart. Well, he, he, he had to come depth in depth because it wasn't Conan picked and Conan had to drop out. Yeah. But I think Conan had togged out. Yeah, Conan so dropped out very late. Reese was going to be on the bench, so Reese had to start. So Maloney got called up pretty late yeah. into the match day 23 and then found himself on the pitch after four minutes. Yeah, that's a good point. And like I thought, he put in a really admirable performance. And, you know, like that was a that was an extremely physical game. Obviously, Leinster's injury toll is really significant after that. Um, and the size, like the South Africans, I always think the South Africans and the French are like the two nations who like b- deliberately underreport their weights. And you always see like, oh, Winnie Antonio, oh yeah, one hundred and thirty-two kilos, one hundred and fucking sixty-two kilos. Oh boy! And you hear things afterwards from like I was listening to Warren Gatlin talk about Trevor Leota saying that he wanted them at like 122 kilos. And they had this ridiculous story about they had the scales in a wardrobe and Trevor Leota would sort of wedge his arms against the side and take a few pounds off. And, and Gatlin told him not to come back in until he was back down to 122. And then he didn't show up for training for two weeks. So Gatlin called him, you better come in, Trev. And he weighed him, he's 132 kilos, you know. And you hear sort of stories about that from the French leagues as well, where they... You know, you see Demba Bamba, oh, you know, 109 kilos, 110. You're going, are you fucking kidding me? Uh, <laughs> so, like, Thomas Utoise was out there, and he's just, he is a huge man, the Sharks' tight head. He was class. He was excellent. Um, but you see the size compared to Porter. Like, he's he's enormous. Porter's not small, and the toy is huge. Um and then Nchunu, their number one, was not only huge, but fast. Like, some of his carries, particularly in the first half, were absolutely devastating. Like, one of their... They have this uh, this age-old South African <laughs> one-way tactic, but just carried out so well of just taking the ball from real depth at real pace. And, you know, you get four gain lines in a row after it. And, like, it takes two men to tackle each forward. Uh, so that was that was uh, that was something which Leinster had to combat. But the thing that uh, I was really struck by was how outstandingly well they executed these first phase plays. Um, Noel McNamara is their is their attack coach, and if that was an audition for potential return to Leinster, he passed with flying colours. Two of their tries. Their first try, Fassi's try, and then uh, Werner Cox's try. You're going, how do you defend that? That looked too easy, but like, how do you actually defend it? It's such slick handling. When I contrast that with how the Cheetahs played against Emerging Ireland, you're going, like, the Cheetahs beat themselves. They had all the ball. They had a really dominant pack. No, not, sorry, they didn't have a dominant pack. They had a very dominant scrum. And they had two incredibly experienced players in the hinge of the team in Pienaar and Franz Stein. But literally, they couldn't put like three passes together. Going to move on to sing the praises of the South Sea Sharks. Um, in particular, their back three. My mate, Fassi, uh, shouting at little girls. <laughs> <laughs> but also scoring two brilliant tries. Uh, Werner Koch cutting incredible promos, looking like Mr. Perfect. <laughs> uh, and... Um, Van Rensburg, the other winger. And just, yeah, the the absolute, like, scintillating talent they displayed. And the kind of, like, just rugby nous as well in Boken play, the way that uh, Van Rensburg try, where he caught a ball that um, Dan Sheehan sort of misjudged the chase on. He went a little bit past it. And he wriggled through two tackles, saw an empty backfield, beautifully weighted kick, and then ran and muscled his way past Sir Gary Ringrose. <laughs> Uh, king of the wing uh, and like scored a legitimate try while being fouled as well. yeah. <laughs> thank god he scored it because it would have been a penalty try and a yellow card as well 
Um, but just yeah, all around they had um, they had bravery to play their particular type of rugby, and it's not exactly the same. It has a, a lot of the sort of basic ingredients ingredients that the the Bulls defeated us with, but then it had a lot more sort of enjoyable embellishment and sort of off the cuff play as well. McNamara's coaching journey, to put it that way, is. Uh Notable, like to, to be picked by the Sharks, um, who were in the Southern Hemisphere, like whatever way he promoted himself or whatever way he networked or whatever way he uh, interviewed for the role, it was it was a big step up, you know, because he was he was a school teacher who did an Irish under twenty gig and was doing the academy team, but like to to make the move to one of the top four. South African franchises because when you when you look and listen to the South Africans like when you when, when you look at them play and you go God like they've a lot of footballers in this team like they, they, and when you when you listen to their commentators you go like they have a real love for the game mm. like, they have a real understanding of like and and it's their understanding but it's very conversational like they they talk about it and. It's it's like a discussion that could be multi layered. It, it it's not a superficial sort of understanding of you know just they have their notes and they're going to get through them come hell or high water. It's like it's a real deep rooted interest. Um, so there must be loads of guys yeah. who who want to coach in South Africa who who are prominent in South Africa coming up through their universities and their club scene. So for McNamara to get that gig without any significant track record in the pro game um he must have done a great interview and he he talks about the challenges of coaching in south africa where you've got guys who speak josha where you've got guys who speak afrikaans and then the guys that speak english and he's obviously an english speaker and having the requirement for clarity and the requirement to be very concise about what you want and to be very planned out. And like he, I've been on a coaching course where he was one of the lecturers and like he, he would love that. Like th that, okay. that challenge and that thought process and that awareness that it would make him a better coach. So he's, he's really changed his standing, I think in, in the professional game and with Lancaster leaving, you, Leinster could do worse. Oh, God, way. yeah. And Leinster, because of Leo Cullen's abilities and the amount of experience he's accrued, Leinster could go with a younger coach who's, Leo is still, his, his job title is still head coach, but he's director of rugby, sort of president of, of rugby almost in Leinster. So um, that's, that's something which could happen. And you could have this, you know, very... Like Leo's 44, 45? 45. And, and no McNamara's, I'm not, not even sure he's 40. Um, so you could have this very young uh, pairing, or relatively young pairing together for maybe two decades, I would hope. Uh, I was really, uh, really impressed with, um, with their... Yeah, no, sorry, to, to go back to one thing I wanted to agree with you, the South African commentators are fantastic. And it's like, it is reflective of their very strong rugby culture, their understanding the game and their enjoyment of the game in front of them and their um, knowledge of the players that they're, they're, you know, the players who they're playing against. They know, they go to the effort to, you know, figure out who they are and who they've played for. Uh, but they're also just so professional. You know, it's a very strong rugby culture, but also strong, as strong as a rugby economy can be. And you know, no, not a not a great currency or anything like that. But like, it's a there's a big base of rugby players, a big base of rugby knowledge, and it comes together. And the Sharks are like right near the top of that. You know, just one rung below the Springboks. Um, but also even listen to the commentators uh, for the Emerging Ireland versus the Cheetahs game. Just their discussions of it and their discussion and their discussion with Nas Bota afterwards, which I thought was really interesting. You know, Nas is obviously a, like he was. Played for Lancaster. Yeah, but he also 
you know, it was like he was renowned as one of the great kickers and maybe to the detriment of other parts of his game, he kicked too much. But he didn't just discuss like, oh, they should have kicked because I love kicking. He's like, even though it's an exhibition match, you know, you do need to inflict pressure on the other team by building a score. But he also, instead of blaming a ref for a 28 or 38 penalty game, he talked about like, maybe the rules are too complicated. He wasn't there going, oh, the ref wrote us. Like, they're going, which is something maybe I, I respond to that because I, I think that as well, that there are too many rules, uh, too many laws. But it was, it was like, that was his, his, he's interested in like the whole sort of shape mm. of rugby, but he was also interested in, in the game that just happened. Rather than just talking about, oh, how does that, how does it leave us for the World Cup? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So, do you see the South African teams as a positive for the URC? Yeah, and I was like, I have, I'm very conflicted about it because of, um, well, since since they were announced because of travel distances, because of upsetting the north, the pretty uh, established northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere divide in the game, uh, and. To the travel distance is two things like the very difficult to for anybody really to afford to go and see an away game in South Africa or for South Africans to come and see away games in in uh, Western Europe and also the you know massive environmental costs of, of, of flights for you know a league uh, that that's entails um, long haul flights. But uh, as a as a rugby league, Jesus, it's so much better than it was. And pure, like, there's there's other smaller factors such as uh, which we haven't fully experienced yet. Well, one of the one of the other factors is the decline of the English league, which has led to more Welsh and Scottish players going back to Welsh and Scottish clubs. And secondly, the uh, scheduling of the league with fewer games and, and no uh, games clashing directly with internationals. So those things are also contributing factors, but it's the South African teams are making this league better. You know, because the, they were dropped in so late in the summer last year, and then the first couple of rounds... And Leinster beat the... Was it the Bulls or the Sharks? It was that beat? the Bulls first in Lansdowne Road. In Lansdowne, yeah. yeah, and they beat them handily. And it's that kind of thing where, you know, the first thing you see, the first impression they made was not great, but then zooming out a bit, it's easy to see why that was the case. Then you see the final, obviously, was two South African teams. But yeah, just the the increase in standards that um, we mentioned, those international players having to kind of exer- exert their kind of presence on the game, just the, ch- the opportunity for someone like Russell, uh, who had had a poor game against um, Zebra. Zebra first up. And he, was, he had a full 80 minutes, uh, you know, really... <laughs> a really tough opponents and there was a moment in the um in the second half where he tried to try to take a ball over his head slipped through his hands on uh, you know in reverse trying to mark it defensive uh from a, from a kick pass or yeah thing. yeah and he dropped the ball but he regained his composure and then fought through a few tackles and you could really see how it benefited him just having to you know just play to to, to, to up his level yeah, he was surrounded then, by better players on his own team. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in that we saw an example of it in the Munster game as well, where when he played against Zebra, the the back three was himself, Max O'Reilly and Jordan Larmer. And Larmer played really well, and the other two lads who were much less experienced, had poor games. Uh, we saw something similar in the Munster Connacht game where Munster had to field a very inexperienced back three. Obviously, Carberry has got quite a lot of experience. Not so much a fullback recently. And then you had Connor Phillips and, and Pa Whelan who's going. So if you have two academy players in a unit now, you used to be able to get away with that in the in the in the Pro 14. It wasn't a big deal. But now it's like, Jesus, this is a weakness. So so Russell was surrounded with, with a lot of good players, even though there was a lot of changes in the Leinster side during the game. Um and you know, it, it was really good that he when he was exposed to pressure from a good opposite number and a good opposite unit in the back three, he you know he did rise to the challenge. Um, he he had a good game. Digs like a demented mole there. They don't build him like that anymore. He won't like that. He's one of a kind. 
Contrasting fortunes for Munster uh, again. Suffered another defeat, um, this time at Connacht on their new pitch. Uh, things really not going very well at all for them. And uh, you think maybe the Emerging Ireland Tour. Yeah, I would say... Controversial Gra- Emerging Ireland Tour has uh, some part to play in that. I would say Graham Merrintree is spitting about the Emerging Ireland Tour. Um, none did you, like Peter Wilkins is obviously... He's now the head coach of Connacht, but Andy Friend is still there in place. Whereas Graham Merrintree, Mike Prendergast, Dennis Leamy are all new to Munster, getting to know players. And they have been, you know, I would say hamstrung because of the, because of their because of their newness team. Even though they they you know lost roughly the same number of players as as Leinster and Ulster, they've probably been hamstrung a little bit more also because it has coincided with a rake of back three injuries so Earl's injured Conway injured Zebo injured now Mike Haley's injured as well they really could have done with Shane Daly and uh, Calvin Nash against um, against Connacht um, now I thought that the Connacht selection for that was really interesting they went with a 6-2 split which they don't normally do and I thought it was it worked out really well for them. They were able to get... So they had this Grant Scott fellow on at Hooker. Sorry, on, on the bench at Hooker. He's a import from Glasgow. Uh, and he didn't get on the pitch, but they were able to still bring on five forwards in about 15 minutes from like 47 to 62 minutes. The first two they brought on were Dooley and, and uh, Josh Murphy. So they're able... Constant strength and depth has always been an, an issue. Um, but they're able to bring on these good... Fords who have won championships for Leinster, who are used to playing, used to used to, they're used to beating Munster as well. So they're able to bring them on, and then to bring on the, the second row whose name I don't remember. Not Thornbury, he was on. Yeah. Uh, Fitz. No, no, no. It's Thornbury and Dowling started, and geez, it'll come back to me. But uh, and then Paul Boyle as well. And then Jack Angel came on and did very well. So they're able to place a, a lot of forwards. That was where Munster's threat was going to come from. Munster's back line has been really poor since the start, and then they had really no threat at all in the back three. So I felt that instead of optimistically going and targeting the inexperienced back three, he pragmatically realized, like, if we're to win or lose this game, it's going to be tight. We're going to have to have good players in the, in the last 20 minutes, and Munster are going to try and beat us up up front. So I thought that was a really wise selection. I I was struck uh, this morning because I thought about it last year about the appointment of Rantry and and what his role was called. So then I looked it up and it's head coach. And then I looked it up McFarlane. McFarlane is also head coach. And I think Leo Cronin is head coach. Mm-hmm. But like Leo Cronin is de facto, he is director of rugby. Um, because Stuart Lancaster is that senior coach position. And I wonder, with the appointment of whoever replaces Lancaster, will will that be addressed? Like, Will they start to call Leo the director of rugby? They probably won't, you know, because mm-hmm. it, it hints at something different. But you see the way he is. Whereas with, with Friendy, they, they changed that role. Sorry, they changed Friendy's job type. Mm-hmm. And they installed Wilkins. And that does seem like a difference. And it, I think it seems like a good move for Friendy, oddly enough, because I thought about it again last year. We probably talked about it a bit in the pod. Like when you had Larkham and Roundtree and Van Grand there, you were there going, it's like, who does what in the attack? Like is is, is Van Grand in charge of this or Larkham? Because it sort of looks like they both are. and That, that ain't going to work, you mm. know? Um, and then when you see the guys that, not not quite so much the monster sign because like Dylende and Snyman were such good signings, but um, how they ended up overstacked in some positions at the expense of other positions. You asked yourself, like, who's in charge of this recruitment? Yeah, how many fullbacks who's, do we need? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like who's who's the director of rugby here? Because that's his role. Like his his role is recruitment, and now they don't have one at all. So you're sort of going, okay, so like Roundtree is still there. Prendergast has come in for Larkham. Uh, did they have a contact coach, a defence coach last year? 
for Leamy. Like yeah, that, JP Ferreira. JP Ferreira went back. So you're going, well, Leamy's got his job. So you're going, like, they haven't replaced Van Graan at all. And you talked about it again. Like, see, Bradley went back to Munster. So you got, like, why don't you make Bradley your director of rugby? Like, or are you, are you saying that you don't need one? And that wouldn't change anything in the short term for Munster. Mm-hmm. But it would it would put a structure around because I think what's happening what's happening now is like a confluence of events, you know, like what's his name? Roundtree, this is his first head coaching gig. And I don't like it, it's it's not evident, but you can point towards the fact that he's only ever been an assistant coach and the difficulties that he's encountering with it and the like the mismatch squad that that they've uh not calibrated but uh cultivated over the past few seasons all of that has come to a head and the i think the the lack of certainty about what they're trying to do and the fact that it's so different so like like i said last week like i would be long monster now because like it can't get any worse for them <laughs> or no it probably can get worse for them but like it will get worse, and then at some stage, it'll have to get better because they are producing better young players. Because mm. like there is a groundswell of passion for Munster that will always see them supported, and that when they start to rally, people will go and see them. Like people will cheer them on. The league is better than it was. There's fewer matches that there'd be better matches to see, but that's not happening now. So, like Munster is sick at the moment. Yeah, um, it's. I, I think the director of rugby role is really a good fit uh, in all of the provinces because, like, you have to have an eye on the middle term. As as because that's where you're getting most of your players from. You're you're trying to develop most of the players yourself, so you have to have an eye in the middle term of like, when I say middle term, I mean like next three years. Uh, you can't just go. What what do we do in the short term, week after week after week? What do I what do I need to do to like that's the head coach's job is to get the result per weekend. His his job is to win matches. But if you do that at the expense of of developing the talent that you're producing yourselves, you you might get out before the problem comes to a head. Uh, but the problem will still come to a head for for the for the province. And the thing that I can't quite make out, and you're describing it there, is who who picks the team in that instance? Who picks the team on a week-to-week basis? Well, I think the head coach does, but I think that he reports to the director of rugby uh, in terms of the director of rugby doesn't have a veto over it. But if there's going to be a huge falling out over, like, it's just a different... It's it's part of the role that yeah. you, you, pick the, you pick the team... But you do, you are you are below the director of rugby. So if it's like in uh, it's like in Moneyball, the film I always quote, <laughs> you know, he, like this is the squad he's assembled, and it's like, but I'm going to pick these pairs. You've assembled the squad, and I'm going to pick the team the way that I want to pick it. But if if he keeps on, if there keeps on coming to a head between the director of rugby, uh, who reports to the CEO, and the head coach who reports to the director of rugby. You see, what's going to happen then is you would imagine that the head coach, if he's not getting results, is the one who gets. That's uh, shit can't. That's yeah. That that's your sanction, and I guess the weakness to that is how easy, how easily can you, or how how well really can you replace your head coach? So like it's it's a sword to hold over. It's a threat to hold over the head coach. That like if if the results are bad, we're going to fire you. But then you're going, and, and then what? You know, because I, I kind of, I listen to those things like, oh, we, he, he reports into him, and I go, does that make it sound like a grander thing? Like, where, where's the fear here? Like, the, the head coach is still really hard to replace. So even if you shit can him, like, okay, it affects that head coach, but he sort of has that over you. Like, and you, as, as an organization, you have to be able to, like, accept that pain if that's going to be your sanction. But at the same, so, and why I was asking, what spurred that question was, looking at the Emerging Irish team play 
and looking at the obvious guys like Hearn and Crowley and you think to yourself like why the hell weren't these guys played more frequently so if if that's the job of the head coach like if that if that's Van Grand's decision and he decides not to pick them then the sanction is well we won't renew his contract but sure he left anyway so mm-hmm. you you're still you, you still have these players who don't get selected whereas I I can't offer a better antidote to that like what's your control if you're the director of rugby like if the director of rugby doesn't choose to coach choose to pick these guys then you know what what maybe, do you have over him maybe that's why Leo still wants to be head coach so he can still pick the team yeah I, I suppose it, it it comes down to who picks the team and and also like you know how, how do you compose your squad and then for the coach it's how well do they put together the strategy and the tactics and you just have to accept that you're not going to pick the team like you're yeah. going to be told this is or sorry you're, you're going to have a consultation and you're going to be able to tell your director rugby this is how i'm going to coach the team yeah like this is this is how i'm going to put it together this is how i'm going to approach the match like i have my own ideas about it and you don't have power over but you don't have power over selection and that's the trade-off and I don't know. Like, I mean, what do the soccer like? What do the soccer teams do with the director of football? Because obviously, the manager still has far more power than a director of football does. But most of the big clubs have a director of football. Yeah, and I think in the ideal sense, and I think maybe more so in Germany, where that is, uh, in particular has been established, the sporting director model has been established. They have a long, <coughs> excuse me, medium long term vision for the club. They hire the coach. The coach reports to them. They're called coaches, not managers. And if the coach isn't doing a good job, he goes, Director. "We get rid of this guy. Yeah. We get a new coach in." Whereas I think yeah, in the like, in the UK, they've kind of come lately to the um, sporting director thing. So they have them in there, but everyone knows the manager is the real figurehead. So they still have a sporting director. I, I think maybe they share the responsibilities for. Talent identification and, and transfer negotiation and being a sort of bridge between the front office and the dugout to use all these people. But think, think of the general manager and head coach in American football as well. So occasionally you've had people who've, who've taken on both roles like Mike Holmgren did for Seattle. Bill Walsh did. Yeah, but a lot of the time and the, the traditional model is that you have two and one assembles the roster and the other one coaches the team that has been assembled. And they both answer to a CEO. I don't think, I, I think in that it's a case of two people at the same level reporting to the, but the owner rather than the CEO, well, generally owner and CEO. Um, but one person can be fired and another person may keep his job. You know, if if they decide like, oh, this this roster that I've put together, I'm speaking as, as the owner, this roster I've put together, what has been put together by the general manager, is good, the coach is doing a bad job, or this is a bad team, <laughs> both people are fired, or the coach is doing a good job, the general manager is my son. <laughs> 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 I'm making him chairman. Um, so I think that that's, like, that's a separate uh, sort of discussion, but the like I think, for example, the, the Munster one is, is particularly, it's an interesting situation this year because... Um, players were being announced as signing extensions, for example, in January when it was already, like it wasn't just leaked, like it was announced that Van Gran was leaving. So Roundtree is, like, did Roundtree talk to the CEO and the Munster board and say, make sure that this player gets a two-year deal? Or is, is the CEO and the rugby board overseeing those and, like, sort of talking, like, do you fancy having this player next year to Roundtree or were they still talking to Van Gran at that stage? Because there are certain players in the past, like I remember when Zane Kirchner played for Leinster, like his first four seasons, his, uh, yeah, he played four seasons, I think, for Leinster. He was always playing with under a coach who hadn't signed him. You know, Joe signed him and then M- Matt O'Connor replaced Joe, so he played two years for that. And then Matt O'Connor re-signed him and he played the next two years for Leo. Uh, and that can, that can just happen, just you know. But and it can happen. He was a he was a um, you know an NIE, but it can happen with just like regular your your club stock basically. So I, I I guess the reason that's 
this is of interest to me is that I don't know what Munster's model is. And it's representative of the fact that I don't think that they know what their model is. And like, why, why is this such an issue? It's not really like if, in, in what, if, if you get the right personalities involved, all is forgiven. Like you get somebody in, be it Klopp, be it Schmidt, be Razzie. it Razzie, be it Pep, and you know, through a combination of money, talent, charisma, whatever, not all of those are embodied in, in the top guy. Like, everything works. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, once you win and, like, all is forgiven. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if you don't, just the uncertainty about what people's roles are, like the uncertainty about what, what's in charge. So even if you go through a hard time, that you just go, this is the model. This is the way it's going to be done. So if I stick around, I know like who I have to impress. I know what I have to do. I, I, I know, like I understand the organization and... But it also helps to identify where the weakness is. And it helps to identify where the weakness is. Whereas from right now for Munster, like the weakness seems to be going all the way up the top. They, they don't know what they're trying to do. That, but you also, know, like, I mean, there's a, why didn't they appoint Roundtree immediately? Why do they not replace Van Gran or why did they not replace Roundtree like you're you're going like who's who's doing what why did you hire Van Gran and Stephen Larkham at the same time like none of these things none of them individually make sense and when I lay one coaching regime against the next coaching Uh, regime um, they make even less sense there's a lot of talk about them changing the style of play that seems like a like the style of play thing seems more like a is that a, I don't know, is that a short term, like just by the end of the season, we should be playing like this? Well, this is a really good question. It's very difficult. They're, like the players are playing individually quite badly. So it's very difficult. That is contributing to not being able to discern exactly what they're trying to do. Like I, I feel, and I might be wrong, that there's a general uh, thought that go that it's like Prendergast is trying to coach them like my cat and Andy Farrell are coaching Ireland. I don't know if if that's true, just because it's really they're playing. So many players are, are playing poorly, like below themselves, below their abilities. That it's difficult to see where what the patterns uh, that are being coached are. Um, and it is it's it's quite like it's a it's a malaise at the moment. Um, and they have they had a relatively no, they did have an easy scheduling uh, start to the game. Now they've had, you know, they've had three away games and one home game, which isn't easy. But you know, they're not playing the strongest teams in the league, which is what they're what they're about to head into: the Bulls, Leinster, Ulster, um, which is which is a you know a tough tough bunch uh, of fixtures. Um, two of those are at home: the first one and the third one against Ulster. But when, like, I I don't know what Prendergast is is trying to, and I get, so much it seems to come down on what what's Prendergast trying to do, what's Prendergast trying to do. Like, I don't, I can't, I can't. The, the coaches never coached together before, so there is this, there is this normal part of any working relationship where you have to find out how you get on with somebody in terms of professionalism. You know, can they? can they pick up the sort of weaknesses in your own knowledge and and how well people can learn from one another and that's like these are all just common workplace things which which do um matter in any environment any work environment including rugby i would also say would also from a distance that probably in the short term there what there might be a difficulty in motivation for um that that first four games of the season kind of gone, oh, this is a oh, transition. And like these lads, some of the big players at Munster, I'm not saying their commitment to Munster, but like human wise, it would be diff- as difficult to be difficult to be as motivated for um, the just dragons that, just, away. Yeah, or... just that kind of that start of the season, having come off the really big high of. Um, Peter O'Mahony, New Zealand, and, and, and like, then just big personal highs, and then just been like, yeah, the last season, oh, 
And it's like, you know, it, I'd say it's just difficult. And like, I, I, I actually think the like Bulls, Leinster, Ulster games will hugely motivate them. I think they need, maybe they need to be defeated by and bullied by a South African team at home to realize, oh shit, you know, to, to really like get a bite into the league or something like that. Yeah, but they, you know, they were going like a, an interpro was a good way to get motivated for anything and going to Connacht should have done that for them. Um, and they were, you know, they were poor against Connacht. Uh, and there was, like, Jack Carty left seven extru- like seven gimme points on the pitch. And, and Munster didn't finish within a, within a bonus point. So that game probably wasn't. Um, it was closer than it should have been, um, particularly because Connacht... Well, it looked like on paper that Connacht would have been overmatched in the back row with Hurley Langton, Oliver and uh, Butler versus Coombs, O'Mahony and O'Donoghue. That's not how it played out. And ditto in the second row, Thornbury and, and Dowling versus uh, Tygburn and Jean Klein. But, you know, you have you have a, essentially Munster's first choice pack. Now you, people can um, obviously quibble about whether Archer or... or um, Keenan Knox is, is their first choice idea. but a lot of like that's a lot of first choice monster players out there in the pack and you know didn't prosper at either scrum line out or even really in the breakdown so um, I think that was that would have been a that had all the hallmarks of the circumstances you were you were talking about there yeah well uh, yeah perhaps I was being a bit charitable and saying that they just they need a big match to wake them up. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't think Connacht. Maybe Connacht doesn't get their juices flowing. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're just playing like a drain for a bit more before they find their feet. We'll see. The crowd didn't like that. Someone needs to stop him. The Emerging Ireland tour seemingly was perfect. We won all our games and everything. No one got injured. It was great. This Everyone had a great time. Sham of a tour. <laughs> Devalue the league. <laughs> uh, like I was sort of, sort of skeptical about it all the way. And like I don't deny that it's some value, but like it's it's a hard spin that's going on around it. How great it is! Like the the game against the Cheetahs was a f- like we scored two really good tries in it uh, from about the four minutes of ball we had over the 80 and uh, Shane Daly's tries and a magical individual try and the other one's a great set piece try and Doug's try was just like tough and he did well the game was shit um, our scrum got mullered we killed their line out they had absolutely no ambition or even accuracy in terms of identifying where his pace was and getting the ball there uh, a, a bad game that went on too long while we faked injuries and walked around, all the things that I've given out about South African teams doing it, we did them. Now, we're playing at altitude. We have good reason to do it. We're also playing our third game in a week. Um, there are certainly players who play quite well over the course of the tour. Jack Crowley, uh, Tom Ahern, Max Deegan, um, a number of players. Like, a lot of players played well. But, like, I, I just... I, I No, and I can see one good point for it. There's, there is no... There is no A competition in in Irish rugby, and there wasn't one last season either. And for this, the benefit of the coaches, they're more interested in seeing players who could potentially play for Ireland and are at a younger age grade. They don't necessarily see the rest of they don't need to see the rest of the lads making up the A team for Connacht or Leinster or Ulster or Munster. They don't need to see the lads they're interested in. So this A international emerging uh, international thing it works really well for. Andy Farrell, even though he didn't bother to go to the game or the tour. And um, I don't know. I just sort of, I, I feel that maybe I'm taking a devil's advocate position, but I wasn't that enthusiastic about it. The game I got to watch live because other games I was in work, I just thought like, this game is going on forever. <laughs> it's a bad uh, game. I feel generally quite enthused by it. I just think that uh, the bits I did see, the way we played rugby, it was uh, compelling to watch them play 
real attack in rugby, and I thought I saw a lot of really talented players there. Obviously, not a very high level uh, environment, particularly the first game. Um, second game but, was fucking atrocious. I thought the second game. I saw highlights of it. No, I didn't see. It. I watched it on fast forward because uh, it, it still it would have taken me about three hours to watch the whole game. Um, they really make the refs wear a lot of stupid colours, I have to say, in South Africa. Um, <laughs> That's your takeaway. <laughs> yeah, it was one of them anyway. Um, and uh, I thought, um, I, 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 I think the, the point of most rugby tours is to like bond a team together. Uh, and I feel like that definitely will have helped in getting those guys into the Irish environment. And I think you, there's some players I don't think they will have learned a lot about. Like, I don't, Balakun, I feel like he'd already emerged and he didn't probably need to go on that tour. But uh, Crowley, in particular, I was really impressed by. I was impressed by the leadership shown by Max Deegan. And uh, I was impressed by the skill level of nearly all of the backs playing the. Um, pass it out the back, pass it out the back, pass it out the back. One of us will run straight at you. <laughs> uh, style of Irish uh, attacking play now. So we've had the bad, the indifference. And what about the good? You loved it. I loved it. Um, so I was really impressed with Shane Daly at full back. I think it's his best position. I, I can, Mike Haley was Munster's best player last season. So, you know, with the notable exception of Tyke Byrne. And, and Jack O'Donoghue was very good as well. Um, so I understand why why Haiti played while he as often in that position as he did, but um, it I was I was delighted really to see Shane Haiti play that well at fullback because I think he's a really good fullback, um, and I thought that Ireland's bend but don't break approach to the Cheetahs game was the way that an Irish team has to play against South Africa. Like, I, I, was, I was sort of thinking about it, and my instinct was that South Africa have dozens of guys because of the size of their playing pool, because of the size of their population. I was looking at a few of their players and going, they've definitely been on, like, the illegals at some stage of their development. Um, just, just given the shape of them. But then you go, like, they have a lot of big people, and you go, like, their depth is so different from ours. And, like, Ireland being so... Ireland's a small country, and rugby's a, a relatively small sport in Ireland. Um, so our sort of perception of depth and our perception of, like, the, the, the player talent, it isn't represented by South Africa whatsoever. Like, South, South Africa have dozens of guys like that and you look at it and you go what's the difference between like the 10th best prop in South Africa and the best prop in South Africa what's the difference between the 20th best and the mm. best like it might be fitness or it might be ball skills but it might not be scrummaging like the 20th best prop in South Africa might be a brilliant scrummager but like the best prop in South Africa is a brilliant scrummager it's it's just that like he's not fit enough or he's he loses his temper or he can't handle, like he can't do different things that you need to do in order to play test match rugby. But um, he can scrummage. He can do his set pieces. And, and Leo, Leo talked about the challenge of playing against the South African teams. And he goes, like, most of our guys still don't get it, even though they do it. And he goes, like, the way that they approach the set piece in particular, the way that they think about foot position or feet position, uh, body position, the the pride that they take in that, like they're they're like that's their game. Like I'm really they're, they're interested really in trying to ex put words to this and like the inbuilt toughness. The the it's like playing county for them. Like there's there's it's their yeah. national game. There's a lot of people aiming to do it, uh, and there's root for you know. It's it's um it's not as the the funnel is wider at the bottom than it than it is in Ireland. It takes in more people, um, and there's the the South Africans even when they they play badly and like the Cheetahs played quite badly, they never there's not never ever South African teams don't quit, like they can they can lose their shit. Remember that game they played against England about twenty years ago. 
Yes. When they beat them like 55 nil or yeah. something. Yeah. Corner Creek, I was captain. Yeah. Yeah. And they just like, went berserk because they were getting hammered, but they didn't. They've no. They never quit. They never roll over. Rugby for them is like it's like that. It reminds me of this old ancient Dick Butkus story I heard. Like when he was, they were getting his team were getting drilled, like phenomenally drilled, like forty nine nil, and he kept on calling timeouts just so he could go. They go back, he get a breather, and he go and try and absolutely nail the opposite guy he was in the line of scrimmage against. Like just try and drill him just for the sake of like. This is what you guys don't understand what American football is about. It's about trying to like hospitalize my opposite number for me. Like and the other guy was trying to do it to book us. Yeah. Because I remember that sort of story. Like it was it was in that book and they talk about it was in that hardback book about the, gray the NFL. Book. Yeah. The grey book. And the guy who's recounting the story just goes, Oh yeah, Buckus was just having a war with this guy. Yeah. So he was gonna use like the two of them would be at, at each other all match. And Buckus was just going to use the last few minutes to just drill your man. Yeah. <laughs> just and get a breather and do it as best he can. And it's every player in South Africa is like that. You saw the 13 like lose his head against um, Leinster and like he hit Ross Byrne in the chin and then he had a swinging arm and ring rolls, you know, within a bit space at six seconds. But like it's their, their 10s are tough. Their 13s are tough. Their 15s are tough. Like, Rugby is a, a confrontational game to them, and they have a lot of what we would sort of look at, and I would look at very fondly as old-fashioned rugby values of like, and sometimes it's a bit hypocritical. Like, let's go and like, you know, high tackle people and swing and arm people, and then at the end of the game, it's shake hands and it's all grand. And sometimes you go, no, it's not grand with me. Like, there's two people in the compact saying this is grand. <laughs> you know, mm. I don't think it is grand, but. That's their that's their opinion of like it's an incredibly confrontational sport for them, and then and then they and they say at the end of it it's it's that's it that's over let's have a let's have a beer together, and I think that is their rugby culture like this really strong culture of rugby is a, a brutal and abrasive competitive sport but there is um, at the final whistle it's it's like it's quite old-fashioned and 1950s gentlemanly, you know, like a nuclear family sort of stuff. Because McNamara, again, talked about coaching in South Africa, and he talks about, like, oh, the threat of power cults in Europe, and he goes, in South Africa, this happens all the time. The brownouts, yeah. The brownouts, like, you know, there's there's a resilience to African people because they have to deal, <laughs> this is their daily life. This yeah. is just what poverty. they have to deal with. Poverty, poverty is real poverty. Poverty, poverty is real poverty. I thought it was... I thought it was. I thought it was a great tour for it. I thought that the the unity that they showed, and I thought that that. I often think of a fight between Babu Sapu and Minotauro. Oh yeah. And uh, it was in Pride. Pride. Two thousand and three. It's probably about nineteen years ago now. I think. And like. Bob Sapp is just this enormous, <laughs> like Nint or Konami character. <laughs> In like a like an eighties bad guy, you're going, you're fighting the super boss, and you're going like, there's no way Minotaur doing pile drivers on him and everything. Yeah, like there's no way Minotaur is gonna be, and Minotaur just soaks it up and soaks it up and soaks it up, and and Sap can't get to him, and eventually Minotaur wins, and you just start thinking, wow, man, like Styles, Styles make fights mm. that that was great, that ability to adapt. And like it was brutal. Like I, I don't know. Would would you be able to have that now? I don't know. Uh, no, maybe you could be. kick in the head in pride. You could kick Lance in the head and they were down. Oh, like it, so. Jesus, I don't know if I'm Ireland Ireland or Minotauro, but like it was. There, there was a bend but don't break quality to the Irish, and you go if Ireland are to win a tournament, we're going to have to play two matches of the last three like that. That's a really good point. Yeah. Mm. No, I'm, I am. You're, you're convincing me, and I, I. Like it's sort of I I felt I thought from when when they were going out there that the standard of teams they were going to be it was an unknown, um and I knew that the cheetahs were going to be the best team. The cheetahs disappointed me. I thought the cheetahs like I thought. Do you remember you were saying like oh the twentieth best tight head prop mightn't be like any worse? Like their twentieth best line jumper is fucking shit. There's <laughs> <laughs> not much for Tom on. <laughs> Tom on. Oh yeah, Ar- Arn was great. Um, he st- he took the player to tournament for me uh, with his with his uh, with his performance in the last game, especially. 
Um, Crowdy was amazing in the first game, and Aaron was very good in that one. But in the, in the third game, Aaron was he was fantastic, and, and like in, across the pitch, you know, both sides of the ball, really. Uh, but like, I was I was really sort of surprised how bad the Cheetahs lineout was. Like that is a that's a fundamental like the, the South African lineouts are normally amazing. Do you remember, like, the Bulls line? And they, well, and of course you remember it. Like, the semi-final last year. Like, oh, these two guys, yeah. like, De Jong and, like, they, they had about six steam camps in their pack. One of the steam camps was, like, they just shredded our line at the front in the middle. You know, and you're going, wow. Uh, and this this Cheetah's line, it was, cr- like, not as bad as Zebra against Munster, but, like, pretty poor. It was it was pretty poor. But Tom Arn got into their heads. He did. He's a hell of a player. Another thing I just think to uh, finish off, I, I don't think there's a... Hmm. 